This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... D&D Mass Battles. Fake Chicago. Darren Watts. And Conspiracy Responsibility. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features five original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to your existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots to bend your players' heads. Escape a labyrinthine airport. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. Available soon from your friendly local game store. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the thump of miniatures, 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 and the benevolent gaze of Napoleon Bonaparte coming alive, welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut, and as you may have guessed, Patreon backer Robert Dean wants to talk about tabletop battles. He asks, do you have any experience or insight into tying RPGs into tabletop battle play? I've been considering the original D&D rules and wondering about leaning into fantastic medieval war games campaigns a bit. The Hellenistic Age would seem to offer some rich possibilities. Well done, Robert Dean. Well done indeed. Uh, Robin, I'm going to just straight up guess that you have no experience, but good insight. Is that correct? Right. Of course, uh, D&D comes out of... Uh, Tabletop Wargaming, uh, that is its origin. It was created by Wargamers. And Chainmail uh, was one of the very earliest components of that. And so that was uh, in intended from the jump to be the uh, war game that you bolted onto D&D. Yet, uh, over uh, time, there have been many different attempts to update Chainmail or to incorporate mass battles into D&D. And still, uh, four decades later, no, almost no one does this. So, uh, the, there are two answers, uh, possibly in front of us then, which is, uh, one, no one has ever successfully figured out how to make it fun, or two, almost no one wants to do it. And those two things, of course, can be related, because if you right. look at your average group of D&D players, I would submit to you that, uh, there are maybe, uh, one or two out of the six, or perhaps zero out of the six, yeah. who, both enjoy old school mass battles war games and D and D. Ken, uh, what do you think? I, I think that I have uh, put my finger personally on the reason that these two peanut butters and chocolates do not, in fact, get together ever. Yes, it's it's like chocolate and coriander, or peanut butter and corn niblets. Right. I think it's like chocolate and peanut butter, but it's like if it took you seven hours to unwrap your chocolate and four <laughs> hours to open your peanut butter and you had to get seven friends to help you. The fact of the matter is that people who enjoy either tabletop war games from minis on through Hex Encounter are 
people who enjoy the war games, first of all, as is, they don't want to play Waterloo, but with wizards, they want to play Waterloo. And second, they don't get enough war gaming already. I mean, there's, uh, it's a, it's a job of work to, to, not just assemble your armies and do whatever, whatever else you do or uh, parse the, the rules, even the sweet, friendly, lovely GMT rules take a bit of doing sometimes. And it's hard to get uh, other wargaming enthusiasts over. Uh, everyone has to block out a Saturday and clean the dining room table and whatever else you got to do. Uh, it's a job of work. Similarly, obviously, it is a uh, almost a commonplace uh, because it is commonplace that it is hard to get your D and D group together for D and D. So imagine having to do both of these incredibly time consuming, incredibly difficult, uh, logistical hobbies simultaneously. And the notion I think is that people are like, look, we finally just got to D and D. Let's just go through some dungeons. We finally got the wargaming group together. Let's just play out the battle of Raffia and not deal with your idea of adding bugbears to it, because that's crazy people talk. And so the network effect actually acts uh, to re- positively repel uh, this otherwise seemingly sensible uh, uh, joining of, of two uh, lovely hobbies. And indeed, when Gary and Dave uh, added uh, guys in uh, wizard hats, to uh, wargaming, there were a lot of people who were bitterly angry with them. To the, yeah. You know, they were cut off by some of their former friends, and there was a they giant... mean letters to the general. Yes. Uh, people were very angry that it had been uh, contaminated in this way, and that... Uh, uh, you know, and as was repeated many times before, people were upset that new people would be coming into the... In, putatively into the hobby, but not wanting to play with them, wanting to play something different. Um, so right. It's hard enough to get people to game out the entire league me campaign over two weekends. Why are you making it harder? Right. <laughs> um, so if you want to integrate these two things, one of the, uh, the most obvious level thing would be to find a war game in a war game group, find your D and D group. And, uh, one week you invite your war game players over to play out the big battle. And then the next week in D and D, the D and D players deal with the effects of that on their world. And, if you are in both uh, groups, if you want to, if you enjoy both things, you show up for both, and implicitly, then your character was at that battle and experienced it firsthand. And uh, otherwise, perhaps your uh, characters who were not so fighty oriented, like uh, I bet the guy who uh, wants to play the bard does <laughs> not want to uh, also play a war game, or uh, and so. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the bard was off, uh, you know, strumming his, uh, his loot for the camp followers and then finds out later how the battle came out and then they deal with the, the political upshot. Then he so writes that, the big song about the battle that he missed. So that's, uh, uh one way to do that. Another uh, way though to tackle the whole design issue of a, a war game just doesn't feel like D and D. Um, it feels like a war game. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the next question would be, well, do we just want a uh, a battle that sort of narratively is influenced by what our D&D characters do? And then it would be more like the way that a war is presented in, say, the Lord of the Rings movies, where the heroic characters go and take heroic part in this and are instrumental in the direction of the war. But what you're seeing now is no longer a simulation with all of the uh, uncertainty of uh, war, but rather part of a heroic narrative, part of the regular heroic narrative of a D&D game in which uh, you, as essentially the, the superheroes of this world, if you're high level, uh, 
help turn the tide of battle, but it feels more like a story. Um, and so uh, it may well be that going down into the dungeon to get the artifact that you need to deliver to the general is the thing that turns the tide of the battle, so that the war part of it is, is not determined by having your uh, little chits fight it out, but rather determined by uh, the failure or success of the characters doing typically D&D-ish sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, mechanically, you can approach this from two different ways. You can play D&D with mass combat rules in it somehow, and those rules can be as easy as figure out the thing in the mass combat that regular D&D would fix, do that, that was your adventure today. It's just there was a whole bunch of elves and men dying nearby. Or play a war game uh, that you already know and, and like with some sort of involvement of your characters. And that can be if you're playing miniatures already, of course, the simplest thing is you just pop your regular D&D miniature into your war game miniatures. In theory, you've got rules for what a fireball does uh, to your battle. And you play out your war game just with your little characters. You can even do that with Hex Encounter um, if you just say... My ranger is with this unit, so they get a plus one on all their combat die rolls or or, or their relative uh, die rolls, depending, again, on how robust the game system is. Sometimes the only die roll is combat, and so everything has to be abstracted down to, are you adding a plus one or a plus two? Do you get an extra die? Whatever it is, modify the, the die roll slightly, play out the war game, and then figure out from the position of the units, oh, the unit with my ranger in it got eliminated. Uh, my ranger didn't die. Obviously, that would sort of uh, spoil the fun unless you've literally game contracted at the beginning of the fight. If your unit is eliminated, the character with it is dead. But now the ranger has a, a much different story of having all those men killed around him than the wizard does of my unit was invulnerable. I just fireballed the heck out of everybody. It was awesome. Uh, and and then you can have the first D&D session, the sort of post-war uh, what, what happened at that battle? What did we do? What did we learn? Did anyone find the armor of the anti-paladin? Whatever it happens to be. Um, and those are the two basic approaches. And that is going to depend very much on the degree to which your D and D group and your war game group overlap. And they may overlap in tiny part as, uh, it used to be in my, uh, game group that I had, Two players who could be, who would, who were eager to play tabletop uh, war games and one who could usually be bullied into it. And, um, uh, now I have probably one player who's eager and one possible, uh, bully. Uh, and now that's unfair. I think I've, I still have two eager, it's just two different eager players. Um, uh, and there does have to be a bit of controlling, but it, but you can't, as you say, ask everyone who doesn't really care about tabletop to show up. And do it unless you've literally built it to be the climactic event of the campaign, or at least of that stretch of the campaign. It has to be worth the candle. Uh, if you're playing the Black Company uh, role-playing game, um, and you're a team of fantasy mercenaries, and every other session is a battle, you'd better have some robust, you know, add mass combat rules to your role-playing game, not the other way around. Or at least, unless you've got um, a much more wargamey uh, 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 players than I anticipate, as you say, you do. Right. For example, uh, one of the four uh, sequences or settings of the Yellow King role-playing game is a weird war setting. And yeah. uh, the implication most of the time there is that the characters are going around solving mysteries against the background of war. Uh, but when you uh, when we got to the end of that uh, part of the, the grand uh, arcing campaign that connected all four sequences, that enables you to bring out uh, the fact that they are 
you know, this chase sequence is being staged in the middle of a giant uh, city battle. And, and so you get to crank up the special effects and everything. But the question of who is going to uh, win that engagement uh, was never the point of the exercise. And in fact, it's sort of baked into that setting that the war is essentially pointless and is being uh, played a sort of a chess game between uh, the aliens of Carcosa for kicks. And right. so that uh, gives you a, a sort of a, a sense that they are in the war, but they are not uh, determining what's going on in the war. I think what you're discussing a little earlier is that a thing where you use some sort of a game subsystem to determine how the battle goes and how drilling down further how each unit in a battle goes. And then also each character determines, A, how much influence they had over that first bit, and B, what the fate of their unit means right. for them. Um, and so uh, th there might be a battle role, for example, at the end where you, uh, you know, your unit is wiped out. So it means uh, there's some chance you will be just outright killed. More likely you'll uh, be badly hurt with some sort of lingering consequence that you can't just easily heal. Or uh, on the other end of things, if your unit does really well, it's like, well, do you get uh, a medal? Is your, are your heroics uh, recognized and so forth? Another way specifically in D&D that I think would be interesting to go at, which would re require someone to do a bunch of design work, is mm -hmm. to actually finally design a mass combat uh, rule system that feels like a D&D fight so that you are controlling your unit and you are rolling a d20 to see whether you hit the other unit or not. And then the other player in the other unit is rolling to see if their fireballs all hit the, uh, the their targets. And it would not stagger me to know that that is what Matt Colville has done in Strongholds um, in his uh, in his game release, because there are mass combat and siege and I think naval combat rules in that. So uh, Matt being Matt, uh, a strong designer with a great love of D&D. If you're looking, uh, I don't know where they are, but I would start looking at, at Matt Colville's book and, and see what you get from there. Right. So if Matt hasn't already done that, uh, someone... Then, uh, some lesser Matt has to do it. To make this work would have to, rather than uh, going back to the roots of wargaming and plopping a wargame back in the middle of D&D, it's to start with D&D and go, what feels like a D&D &D fight uh, that we can describe as a as a mass battle uh, mm -hmm. because uh, historically it has been okay let's get the miniatures and put them on the table and and we've already discussed the uh, uh, and, and even just if everybody is into it uh, all of a sudden you've had a massive shift from uh, tactically running you know there's the old question of does playing a war game at all feel like being in a war and <laughs> Uh, even with fog of war rules, it's, I, I think it's pretty hard to start thinking of that as both a narrative and a, uh, tactical, uh, gaming experience. Yeah. I mean, it, a lot of it also depends on your degree of comfort with, with, uh, with, with war games and, and, uh, that kind of simulation anyway in play. If you are a brand new, uh, D and D player excited and, and fascinated by the possibilities of role playing your elf. You may never want anything to do with this. And if the GM says this is going to be a battle, like in Game of Thrones, um, you won't even know it enough to say he means stupid and ill, uh, <laughs> ill designed. Um, and it, all you'll be doing is, like you say, you're, you're just engaging in regular sort of role playing, except there's a whole lot of dead people around you. The other thing that maybe is relevant at this point is that a lot of other games do have mass combat systems of one sort or another that does sort of feel like a, a standard combat GURPS 
uh, classically um, makes it as complex as you want it to be. But at the end, it is just the same three dice and a cloud of dust that GURPS is for everything. And there are other systems that that do one or an, another decent attempt to to port mass combat into the into the tabletop. There was, in fact, a, a black uh, company role playing game, I think, from our buddies at Green Ronin. So you might want to look in that. And they must have had some sort of mass combat rules. And uh, generally, the folks there are pretty good at, at design and Primus, at least Chris Primus uh, knows his war games uh, very, very well. So that one might feel a little more like a war game played by D&D people, but it's another direction to look, I think. Well, uh, now that we're sending people scrabbling to their game shelves, uh, I think we can take a, a brief break and then uh, reconvene after we've eaten our iron rations. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires and got burned. You're all alone against them. One player, one game master. Create your own agent or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knights Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. The retinal scan that you uh, underwent in order to listen to this episode and also the extensive background check tell you that you are once again listening to the Tradecraft Hut. This is the uh, hut where we talk about espionage, uh, historical or actual or current. And uh, today, Ken, you discovered that uh, your nation's national security apparatus is uh, planning to invade and destroy Chicago and has uh, taken measures to train for that. They're not just planning to do it, Robin. They're planning to do it over and over and over. Yes, um, until they get it right. And then that's, yeah. that's where they're coming for you, Ken, uh, and to take your books from your library. As, as, as in the immortal words of Humphrey Bogart, there are parts of Chicago I wouldn't advise invading. Um, <laughs> well, they're, they're training hard for those. So this, hard this for story begins, as so many recent stories have begun, with a redaction failure. Yes, with someone in the government not doing the thing that they literally get GS2s to do. Are you, are you um, saying that the America has, has forgotten how to government, Ken? I'm saying that government uh, doesn't government under the best of circumstances, and these are not those. Yeah, so there's a, um, basically it was a purchase order that, that they basically, they wanted to buy all the stuff to build this uh, facility, and they just... Um, did a uh, a crummy job of redacting. And, and so you could cut and paste. And you know how when you highlight over the thing and then the text just shows up in the black? That's what they did. Um, and so what was revealed uh, by this redaction error? Uh, what, what was revealed is that the uh, ICE, the uh, Immigrations and uh, Customs Authority, whatever it is, the immigration guys are going to build training facilities at Fort Benning, Georgia, that will be hyper-realistic training devices and a uh, vehicle assault training area and hyper-realistic props and design that simulate residential houses, apartments, hotels, government facilities, and commercial buildings. And so far, um, 
it's you know you've seen the movies where the uh, the uh, the cops or whoever have the exact duplicate of the building or SWAT team does and they and they practice busting in. That's basically what this is. But the fun part is they want two models. They want a Chicago and they want a fake Arizona, and that they will be building those uh, as I say uh, somewhere on Fort Benning, uh, so that they can uh, do. Uh, and the and the document says it has to be hyper realistic. So I'm not sure how hyper-realistic it's going right, to get. Right down to the dishes still in the sink. and I guarantee they're going to get the Italian beef wrong. That's one thing that's going to be wrong. <laughs> yes. They've got to make sure there's malort on the shelves. and uh, Exactly. So, oh, like they're going to bust into the north side. That's not <laughs> happening, Robin. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, the, the words that come to my mind are not at all ominous. Yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> none of, none of this is a bad scene. Um, no matter what you think, uh, beginning with the fact that ICE can't even redact a document and going through, uh, somehow they need to build extra buildings because you'd think they would have access to buildings already somewhere, but now they need more, which is a strange thing. And uh, they also are building three fishbowls, which I guess are the command centers uh, for the Arizona and the um, uh, Chicago. Westworldish is what pops to my mind, actually, when you add the sort of um, uh, notion of the prisoner-style control room in it. So they have to teach the androids uh, how to speak in uh, uh, Chicago accents. Right, how to, how to flatten their uh, vowels correctly. That's the real problem. They got everything else about the robot right, but it, it can't flatten a vowel correctly. It insists on speaking with proper diction. So aside from the uh, the fact that they uh, uh, blew uh, this secret and uh, and then have now officially unclassified this, so they've released an unredacted version that right because it's the, embarrassing says it was in Fort Benning. Uh, what makes this a, an espionage story instead of a uh, militarized uh, quasi police story? Well, I mean, uh, at the at the first part. Um, the the sort of the overlap between espionage and and policing uh, disappears completely when you talk about uh, what is politely termed counterintelligence and in other circles is called domestic covert ops. But let us uh, putting the best imaginable case on it, say that you have uncovered some sort of ISIS terror cell and they are based in somewhere that is like Chicago or somewhere that is like Arizona and you need to train your your team of elite uh, super spies to take them down. You would go to the ICE facility here at Fort Benning and and practice covert home invasion in uh, pretend Chicago and Fort Benning. Right, but it's not actually going to if if there's a uh, an actual or even imagine terror cell. It's not ICE going in to find them, right? They're not right. going to capture them and deport them. No. Uh, so. And ICE is barely doing either of those other two things. Right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, uh, but ICE actually might, depending on if the, if the, if the cell, um, is operating via, you know, sort of an illegal immigration funnel. I mean, that's one of the reasons ICE suddenly gets all this cool new stuff is the argument that if you're not policing your southern border and a million people a year are coming through, literally with no control, some of those are going to be very bad actors. And the notion is that ICE would be the unit with jurisdiction necessarily to take uh, to take that down. Now, I assume that the training that they're doing, uh, even at Fort Benning, uh, for ICE is going to be of the relatively, what do I want to say, the, the relatively non-militarized uh, compared to, say, you know, uh, SEAL Team 6, over-enthusiastic Kamala Harris-style knock-and-announce type stuff. Uh, but who knows, right? I mean, it's at Fort Benning and Fort Benning is also where, 
they teach, for example, uh, all of the Latin American dictatorships how to run their secret polices at the uh, School of the Americas. Um, and I, of course, now mean they only teach Latin American democracies because I'm sure we must have changed all that stuff. But anyway, we are training foreign secret police at Fort Benning. We are training right. a lot of American um, uh, counterinsurgency type units of various sorts. Um, and uh, ICE is getting in on that action because that action is not going away, I expect. Right. And it's it's a justification that one can make for funding and resources, but there's been no evidence of an insurgent cell. No, coming I mean, across. good Lord, no. Um, right. But, but, but again, I mean, and again, putting the best imaginable case on it, one does not train for the average event. One trains for the extraordinary event. You know, the, the fact that we've never had an outbreak of Ebola doesn't mean that I don't want the C- CDC out there training like heck for an outbreak of Ebola. Um, I, I, that's literally their job. So you can make an argument that maybe it shouldn't be ICE, that this really should be either the FBI or, um, uh, the Chicago Police Department should be training to deal with bad people in Chicago. Right. Because which if would be ICE a- is doing it, there, someone has got the idea that, uh, they're going to have, uh, mass urban raids and it's all going to go great because right. we've, uh, micromanage the dishes in the sink. So everything's yes. fine. We can go exactly. ahead. Everything's fine. And yes, do this. And it's, we've a got a idea. very, very realistic Arizona. Nothing can possibly and go wrong in real Arizona. Um, so <laughs> how do we, uh, put this into our, uh, uh, modern day, uh, espionage oriented, uh, gaming, whether it's the, the Ezoterrorists or, uh, Delta Green. We're, uh, trying to nerd trope this and make it more fun by, uh, adding, uh, the uh, the possibility that we've got uh, uh, something else in those uh, makeshift ha- in those uh, replica houses that they're uh, training to attack. So is this Delta Green's uh, new training center for uh, going in and getting uh, serpent people and deep ones? Um, well, I mean, I think first of all, in in Arizona, it would be sand dwellers and and like that. But uh, yes, uh, I I think in a in a sort of a Delta Green nice black agents type environment, it's going to be this is a, a place to train monster hunting, and they did it under ice because ice is getting the big budget, and that's where they could hide it. Um, I like the Ezoterrorists Unknown Armies aspect of it, which is they've gone and built a voodoo doll of Chicago, and. The training is completely not the point. The point is to build the magically effective duplicate of Chicago so that you can alter it to get things. And maybe it's just as notion as, as innocent as we're going to uh, slowly improve everything in pretend Chicago and pretend Arizona to raise the national GNP. But you and I both know that what they're actually going to do <laughs> yeah, so that's is not, that's try not a to. Line. Right. Is try to focus ley lines and murder people in real Chicago by killing their identically dressed duplicate walking down duplicate Chicago on the street that is dressed to look exactly like their home street. And so you, you know, um, in a really dark esoterrorist game, you kill like a homeless guy, uh, who you've kidnapped and put in the fake Chicago and you shoot him on the street corner so that your real enemy just drops dead. Uh, on the exact street, street corner in Chicago, or less so, you do a fake assassination that magically turns into real voodoo doll style uh, uh, law of similarity killing. Right. So the the entry point into that as a scenario is that there are people uh, dying of gunshot wounds in in Chicago or Arizona, except there's uh, there's a wound, but there's no uh, bullet. bullet. Witnesses see no shooter. Uh, there's uh, not necessarily even the possible. I guess there has to be. You know, you can trace the ballistic line of where the shot would have been fired because it has to be within the actual 
physical confines of uh, whatever structure you're in, but mm -hmm. uh, there's no uh, powder residue. Uh, the security camera doesn't show anything. It just shows somebody dropping dead of a bullet wound with no bullet. And then mm -hmm. the investigation has to go to, uh, you find a bunch of these cases, some are in Chicago, some are in Arizona. And I guess your way into the Fort Benning aspect is that you uh, in gumshoe, uh, you make a bureaucracy role and uncover the unredacted document and realize uh, you pull up the, the photos, you do a, a computer uh, hack and you find that the, uh, yes, indeed, the photos of all of these mysterious crime scenes match uh, the replicas in, uh, in Fort Benning. And then you have to uh, right. make your way uh, into Fort Benning to the hostile uh, forces. This is obviously a case where the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, military industrial complex has been infiltrated. Uh, not the Ordo Veritatis part, but uh, some other part of it. But and then, some yeah. other part of it. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, the U.S. military industrial complex is not only Ordo Veritatis. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's there's got to be some bad guys in that uh, right. setup as well. So as long uh, as another you're... possible lead is uh, that you uncover that you know before each killing, someone ordered a bunch of deep dish pizzas from the pizza place nearby, whatever it happened to be. And you're like, that's odd. You know, they're all for delivery to Fort Benning, Georgia. And that, you know, is the is the link that they have to first they have to use it as set dressing, but also it provides a magical link between uh, pretend Chicago and actual Chicago that they've uh, some sort of uh, transaction that you can trace points to Fort Benning as opposed to just stumbling on this uh, in a sort of, I wonder if there's anything about Chicago on the Internet type way. Uh, another possibility is that these are essentially complex sympathetic magic transporter devices so that you can infiltrate someone's store or home and appear and uh, either steal their documents or do them harm and then reappear back uh, at the duplicate version of it in Fort Benning. And so in that case, uh, rather than having uh, phantom bullets, uh, which is cooler and more unique, uh, you would then, uh, you know, on the security camera, someone would briefly appear uh, steal documents, whack someone on the head, and then uh, briefly uh, vanish again. And uh, that uh, then becomes a uh, bigger scale problem because if the bad guys suddenly uh, have uh, reliable teleportation technology and all they need to do that uh, to make it work is to build a replica of whatever it is that they want to invade, uh, that is a uh, unprecedented uh, security breach uh, worldwide. Right. And and the notion being that this is like the ninth or the tenth one that they've built, that they've got a, Kre the, a pretend Kremlin and a pretend Iranian presidential palace and a pretend whatever else out in, you know, the, uh, you know, um, under a mountain in, in Wyoming. And then they're like, well, the technology is so strong. Our clairvoyance or astral projection or teleportation or secret murder or whatever it is. Uh, that now it's trickled down to ice and ice is like, well, let's build one for Chicago and Arizona. And they're, uh, actually that that is a, a lead that leads you to the, the real, uh, team of, of psychic warriors who either are performing genuine national security things. And now it's been hijacked to do domestic, uh, infiltrations in Chicago and Arizona, or they're up to something even grander and more terrible. And you have to trace it to the, uh, the, the, the secret Kremlin under Cheyenne mountain and, and stop the guy who's been astral projecting there since the seventies and is now basically, uh, convinced himself that he's actually Vladimir Putin or something, or maybe he is Vladimir Putin. 
Maybe the the uh, the one we see on TV is a mandroid that's been replaced by the teleportation. And if you're doing a setting where the the reptoids are uh, in in bed with the 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 deep state, uh, you can then uh, posit that uh, they have provided this uh, technology and that they're uh, using it in order to uh, to sort of wipe out their enemies and uh, your uh, uh, then have to worry about the you know the fact that the the reptoid run. Uh, government has uh, figured out how to uh, how to do this and, and come after them, and uh, uh, it's, so in fact it may be uh, rather than uh, actual training for uh, ICE officers, that's just the cover, and in fact it's the uh, hybrid soldiers who are uh, training for their uh, invasion of America, or and so it's not necessarily even uh, that the uh, we're moving back to the training centers being mundane, except the people using them in training. Uh, to uh, practice their invasion of Chicago are uh, are what's weird. They're the the humanoids or or what happened. Right, you. that they're that they're reptoids or uh, aliens or something. <laughs> it suddenly occurs to me there are probably a million fake Oval Offices around, given all the movies and TV shows. <laughs> and so someone just cleverly bought the the Oval Office set from like X Two or Veep and has snuck it off to an island somewhere and has built it so that they can try their own um, uh, uh, dark or light magic to uh, infiltrate and influence uh, the, the the contents of that room. Uh, that's why there's always a big fuss every time when there's a change of administration as to whether the bust of Churchill has been moved in or out. Right. Because um, so, the bust of Churchill is like the it's like the spinning top in Inception. Yes. Each each party <laughs> has the only its, way they can tell it from the real one. It has its own warding system. Mm -hmm. uh, the, Churchill doesn't work for the Democrats and, and vice versa. And so. Uh, You've got to uh, switch out the decor in order to, uh, uh, you know, who knows what the gold drapes are letting in. Uh, well, uh, now, <laughs> now that we're moving back to uh, Primal Terror, I think it's time for us to uh, create a replica of our hotel room at the Embassy Suites uh, in Indianapolis and use it to go back in time uh, after this exciting commercial message. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast from turning into a fake Chicago by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Ben Vincent. Orrin Gashuri. Peter Williamson. Raphael Pabst. And Thomas Edward. Edward. 
Welcome back to the scenic Embassy Suites Hotel in lovely downtown Indianapolis, Indiana, where we, Ken and Robin, talk to someone else. And indeed, Ken and or Robin are talking to Darren Watts, because we're here at Gen Con with Darren, beloved game industry legend, bestriding the field like a colossus, former impresario of hero games, but now three new game projects, too much to talk about. We'll try to hit some of them, but Darren also... You were an impetus behind First Exposure, so tell us about that. First Exposure is here on site, uh, running, uh, well, it's Double Exposure uh, is the company that is running the First Exposure Playtest Hall, where publishers bring games that uh, are not quite finished yet to get some high-quality playtesting from the attendees here at Gen Con. Uh, it's free to the players. The publishers are the ones paying for it, and they put out a table every two hours during the show, uh, some new, cool, unfinished game for you to break and mess around with. So what sort of player shows up to uh, playtest stuff at Gen Con? Uh, well, the great thing about it is we have a, the, the audience is curated, right, for it. So uh, we can bring in a wide range of players. Gen Con gives us access to players who have a wide range of experiences. And part of what First Exposure offers to publishers is the chance to... Uh, present their games to people. For example, they may say, oh, I want a table full of Eurogamers. Or I want a table full of, uh, you know, uh, kids 12 to 15 or something like that, right? Um, you know, we can, we can provide them with a very specific playtest experience for whatever game it is that they actually want to run. And Gen Con gives us the widest possible uh, potential audience so, uh, for the show. And since it's free to the actual players to do it, um, it's not hard to get people to, you know, come in during a free two hours during the show to, you know, sit down and try to run something. Um, so. You say it's not hard, but how does that wrangling work? How do you gather these? How do, how do you curate? Uh, well, it's, you know, we have a lot of people, since this is the seventh year we're doing it, a lot of people are familiar that it does go on. So we don't have to do quite as much kind of, you know, pestering people in the hallways to, to come over as we did before. But we still do do that. We're set up right by registration, so it's fairly easy to... Uh, to find the hall, and it's in a great kind of, you know, like passageway on the way to the exhibit hall, so uh, we just put a lot of signage and everything out there for it, and we get all the people we can handle. We're going to put thousands and thousands of butts and seats over the course because of the just show. just running a protospiel at Gen Con was too easy. Right, yeah. It has to be a so curated protospiel. It has to be a curated protospiel. A la Metatopia, except much louder and longer. Exactly. Well, this, this, this exists because a Gen Con person came to the first Metatopia and said, this is amazing, we need to do this uh, on-site at Gen Con. I'm pretty Gen sure Con, I so. said that to the Gen Con person. Well, that might be, that may be how it happened. I'm I believe sure. it was me. Yeah, fair enough. All right. I'm not going to say, but I believe yeah. it was we, me. We don't set we, up these interviews in order to take credit for things, but when the But, but as long as it's passing as long as we're mentioning exactly. it, might as well mention it. But Your name should be on the sign. It should be on the sign, quite yeah. frankly. Ken Height presents. Right. Um, but speaking of other Fast things. Fast and Furious presents. Ken Height presents. Presents Ken. Right. Right. Watts and Shaw. Um, or yeah. Watson Nevins. Uh, Watson Nevins, of, yes. Um, blockbusters. You and Jess Nevins, beloved encyclopedist uh, in front of the program, are doing a game based on. Uh, Challenge of the Unknown versus Kaiju, basically? That's that, the sort of that's, high concept? That's, that's kind of the high concept, yeah. The third bomb that we dropped on Japan woke up the monsters. Mm -hmm. And so uh, with uh, the, the Cold War proceeds apace, except with the addition of the existence of giant monsters and the science that we have generated from capturing, studying, killing giant monsters. Because right. obviously, in a world where you know Godzilla exists, the square cube law is out the window. And so, and so much we're more. learning a whole bunch more about how right. the universe actually works. How to build an atomic reactor out of a lizard, for example. Exactly. Right. right. So we have a, a certain amount of uh, actual 
you know, we're saving cities from being trampled by giant monsters, but we're also trying to beat the Russians to getting those giant right, monsters. Because which is part they of the can't gag, be trusted with the giant monster tech. Exactly. And what's so, the name of this upcoming project for people to eagerly type into Google? It is called Explorers of the Fantastic. Explorers uh, of the Fantastic. Yes. Because at once they get underway, uh, you know, studying kaiju, of course, there's a bunch of other entertaining stuff in the universe that they can start finding out about. Right. Uh, you know, that, 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 that's that leads just to, the, right? the launching pad. It's the launching pad, right? The, you know, sometimes we have, you know, ordinary earthbound kaiju, but we also have aliens and lots of other fun stuff exactly. that, that happens. In it. And we've got a bunch of scientists in, you know, matching color-coded jumpsuits with cool gadgets and vehicles and that sort of thing to chase these monsters around. Everything and, you want. Absolutely, and, so, you're and it's a delight to work with Jess because I wanted to work with him because for a million Jess, years. Right. Yeah, so. and and you're doing this in Savage Worlds. Yes, uh, which is a departure for you. It is. You of course made your bones with Hero and wrote uh, some of the finest Hero products, Thank including you. Golden Age Hero and uh, or was it Golden Age Golden Champion? Age Champions, right? Golden right. Age Champions and Lucha Libre Hero. Yes, which you did with Jason or yes. against with, Jason. Yeah, well, <laughs> at different times during the process, right. it was a uh, yeah. A and, more. And, and one of the most Bounced underrated, the ropes a couple of one of the most underrated yeah. game supplements. Jason who? Jason, Jason Walters. Walters. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, uh, one of the most underrated game supplements ever, in that it legitimately took everything great about that j- sub sub genre presented it in a way that both psychotic aficionados and entire noobs could grok, and then was done. It was exactly as long and as good as it needed to be, which is well, thank you very that much. literally yeah. never happens. Thank you very much. It was a joy to work yeah. on. So, it was one of the books I got into the industry to write. Right? So was, from, from masked wrestlers, we of course get to doggos. Yes. Right. Um, and tell me, how does uh, a... Because if you see something that says, oh, it's the uh, We Rate Dogs game, you immediately think cheap, cynical, garbage game. But in fact, it's a great, fun family game. How does that happen? How does a good we, game get attached we, we started, to a property? The original uh, source of the game was that we were uh, live-tweeting uh, Westminster. Right. And just for fun, just because it's such an entertaining show to watch. And we, the, the, the joke that year was that we were calling it like a sporting event, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were making up stats for the dogs and talking about how the Pomeranian just wanted it more and that kind of thing. Post-sabermetric Westminster. Exactly, County, right, right, yeah. And so we had, you know, goodness above replacement dog as a stat right, yes, and that right. kind of thing for us. And so as we were doing this, uh, one of the people involved in that live tweet for it was like, that was really fun. We should make a game out of this. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll contribute to this game. That sounds like a fun idea. Um, and I know dog shows because I've been going to them all my life, basically. So, as we kept talking about the game and passing rules jokes, you know, rule stuff back and forth, we kept making jokes about the We Rate Dogs Twitter account. Mm-hmm. We probably made five or six references to it because we we're all fans of the Twitter account. Because I think it's, it's funny because it's funny. Everyone enjoys it. Um, and finally, after about the fifth joke went by, uh, one of us said, it's, you know, has anybody ever called him? Is that a thing that could be licensed? Could we actually do this? So we tracked him down. His name is Matt Nelson. He's an absolutely wonderful guy. Um, lives in Pennsylvania, and we told him about the game and the, you know what we wanted, and he was like, not only yes, but I absolutely forbid you to go any farther without me. I would really love to have a game, but here's the thing. The aesthetic of We Rate Dogs is very much against like breeding, right? Like Mutts right. are awesome is yeah. part of the aesthetic mm-hmm. for this. So you have to take out everything that you've already done about breed standards and everything for this and replace them with like the kind of goofy stuff that we actually judge dogs on. Their sass, their boopability, the floof, you know, like all of these things. And once we did that, 
the game became a hundred times better. Right. right? It's, it immediately improved Huge everything fun. we were doing, and it became much more, you know, like a, a game about just like celebration of the awesomeness of dogs. And it takes, and it, it, one of the fun things about it is that it takes the game from being a specialist interest. Right. Because if you don't know a Yorkshire Terrier from a Cocker Spaniel, exactly. you're not going to be able to enjoy a dog breed game. But everyone knows whether a dog is boopable or not. Exactly. That's right. just yeah. How much zoom has he got? Right, right, yeah. So, And of course, because everything on We Rate Dogs is rated on a scale of 10, and it's impossible for a dog to get less than 10 out of 10. Right? All of Matt's ratings are like 14 out of 10, this wonderful dog or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that became the basis of the game was... Uh, you know, it's like, well, we're just going to put these uh, cards of, like, adorable dogs that already have stats on them, and the game is trying to have the highest stat in whatever is currently being judged while sabotaging your opponents and that sort of thing. So it became a, you know, fun, take that, you know, point and yell uh, kind of game based on, uh, you know, this this awesome this so property and this awesome thought. So did you source the dog photography from the Twitter feed? Yes. Yeah, when you when you get your dog put on the Twitter account for it, you have to sign a waiver that gives Matt the right to use it, not just in games, but also in calendars and promotion and whatever else for it. So all of the uh, all of the art uh, comes from people who contributed to We Rate Dogs sometime over the last several years. So. Now, this seems like something that has an obvious uh, mainstream crossover appeal. Is this something that you're pursuing? Absolutely, yeah. Well, when we when we signed Matt and realized we have God only knows how many million followers that he's got on his Twitter account for this, we realized, oh, we're going to need a bigger boat, right? We were just going to kickstart this for fun, maybe 20 grand or whatever, and just go out and, and make this game ourselves. When we realized what the potential of it was, um, we wound up instead taking it to Chronicle Books as a publisher because they understand internet memes, right? They were Grumpy Cat's publisher. So the idea of like, how do we actually promote a game like this to the rest of the world uh, right. was, you know, like Chronicle already and, knows how to do that and they make beautiful looking games. So working with them was a, you know, was a, was a no brainer and they've done a fabulous job. On and it. future historians uh, researching the era note the sentence, they really know internet memes. They were Grumpy Cat's publisher. Right. Uh, yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, emblematic of the it, era. Exactly. Right. If you want to understand to the, dead the, the 21st from... century. Yes. yes. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the Grumpy Cat era, as it is known, as it is known now here right. in the 35th yes, century, right. or whatever. The, yeah. The, the, the Grumpo scene. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. So they've been great, and it's you know it's in Target, it's in you know uh, Barnes and Noble, everything, everything. Chronicle came to us already knowing how to do all the hard parts of publishing, right? They already right. know how to get be in Amazon and how to do Barnes & Noble, how to do all of that stuff. What they didn't know was how to be in your friendly local game store, right? Psh, I can teach them that. Right. That's, you know, this that's, is, they, they, they got the hard stuff down. That's falling off a log. So, yeah. So, <laughs> just you know. get Jess Nevins, put some jumpsuits on her, when you go. <laughs> and you're, and you, so, you got it. So, so you say yeah. they came to you. So they their intellectual sense of well, this lead them to I, I, I already had a connection to them. My wife works for them. Uh-huh. So I have served as a consultant for them previously uh, in setting up their so game lines. So they mysteriously got word. So they mysteriously got word that like we had this really cool game that might actually be. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so yeah. So I've actually been consulting for, with them for two or three years now in setting up their game line. And, they didn't just uh, pick up the black phone and say, "Get us a nerd." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, two or three years ago they yeah, did, they, but they, it turns out that right. you know they had a nerd attached to it. Get, get us already. Diane's nerd. <laughs> yes, Diane's specifically Diane's <laughs> nerd. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, speaking of nerd, uh, the I guess the not the opposite because they're both great, but the opposite in a lot of ways of. We rate dogs is uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse. Yes, because that is not just 
inside baseball. That is inside fantasy baseball about teams that don't exist. Exactly. Right. And you are writing. I've described my own book, Adventures in the Darkness, as the nerdiest thing I've ever done. And apparently, when I did that, you stood I up. I said, "Hold and my said, beer." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you think that's nerdy? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so tell us what is involved in being the official historian for a line of comics. That exists only to provide a backstory for a card and role-playing game. For a card game, game and, a yeah. ro- and a forthcoming role-playing game. Right. Yeah. yeah. I went to uh, Christopher Bedell um, at one point, uh, just at a show, and said I, I had played Sentinels and I had looked at all of the cards and all of the you know like back matter that's on about every hero and all the quotes from the fake comics that existed, and I was like, this this didn't happen by accident, right? I can tell that there is a structure behind this, right? That you, the, you've put some thought into this. All of these numbers kind of make sense to each other and everything. I bet in your head there is a full understanding of how the universe that this game, you know, is, is based on actually would the, function. The universe that this game fell through the rift from. Exactly, right. right. And I want to write the official handbook to that universe, right? I originally pitched it as before I even knew there was an RPG coming. I wanted to pitch a product of, I want to tell the backstory of all of this, including the information about the fake publisher and the right. fake artists yeah. and the fake because writers. A and lesser fake... creator, uh, Darren, might have said, I just want to do the encyclopedia of all the fun heroes that everyone enjoys. Yeah, right. Not no, you. No, no. You wanted to have the Lee I wanted... Kirby feud of I, that exactly, universe. <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted. Right. So, yeah. Oh, no, no. I want to hear more about the borderline pornography so, and the I, mobsters. I, I, that's I what's exciting about I, superheroes. I literally, I told this story to, to Christopher as I was doing it as part of my pitch. And uh, I was telling him that in the... I got the story from Gerard Jones, actually, right. from it. Yeah. Um, that in the 50s and 60s, DC had a bullpen too. They just didn't call it that or promote it that way or right. anything. But they had an office where most of the kids who worked in the, in, for the company, the letterers and the inkers and you know whatnot, and the production people like worked in this office. And most of them were quite young. Most of them were in their early 20s. And then there was Julie Schwartz as the editor, right? Um, who was, you know, I don't know, 60, whatever at that point. Um, and there was this guy who would come in every day to their break room and sit down. He was like a much older man with a broken nose, big, tough-looking guy, uh, you know, scar on his face, that kind of thing, would sit down in their break room, pour himself a big, strong pot of coffee, light up the fattest, ugliest stogie, you know, that you've ever seen, pick up the uh, racing form, get on the phone, and just start betting on horses all day. And nobody in their office had the guts to call him on it and be like, what do you do here? What's your deal? Why are you coming in here every day are doing you, this? Are you right? Are you Jack Miller? Do you write Aquaman? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who, who are you? Because that would and explain so, a lot. And so finally one of them goes upstairs to Julie's office and says, you know, Dave in the break room, what's his deal? What does he even do here? And he said, well, uh, you know, back before DC was DC, when it was national publications and the various companies that turned into DC, one of them was a pulp publisher. And that pulp publisher in the early 30s had done spicy pulps, and they had gotten busted for obscenity. And that guy claimed to have been the publisher at the time, and he did two years in prison for them. And 25 years later, he still had his make-work job at D.C. coming in every day just betting on horses. And so I told Bedell this story, and I was like, that's the true story. Imagine the version of that I can tell about your fake company. (laughs) And he was like, sold. You've got a book. Right. And that book suddenly kind of with the, you know, the, the RPG getting set up, that, gr- that book kind of even mushroomed well beyond that to the point where it's now coming up on 200,000 words. 
uh, by myself and Christopher McLaughlin about the uh, the fake history. Because because when insanity is not enough, it, right? Exactly. Bring so, Chris McLaughlin. Bring, bring Chris project. McLaughlin along to make it even more insane. So, so the, how many words do you have to reach before a meta hole in the universe opens up? I think we might have already done it. So <laughs> I, 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 I guess it's back around 150 is where we pass that point. So mm-hmm. the last quarter or so of the book is a fake Overstreet price guide to collecting those comics. Uh, which also serves. I was so as proud of myself for having two which, pages. Yeah, okay. Which is so a right. Which is so, a, a nod. We nod in the book to Ken for so, creating so this joke. So future historians studying this era, that stuff is all fictional. The, the, That's well. You know, so now we say now it is. What, right. what happens now that we've broken the universe? It's who can who say can what say might come through right. that rift. Uh, right. Well, one of the rules on this podcast is after we break the universe, we have to stop for commercials. So thank you very much, Darren Watts, for talking to us. Thanks for having me. That's lovely. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The corkboard with the red strings that connect all the different pictures. We've got Bilderberger Group. We've got Owls. Uh, for some reason, uh, Suzanne Summers is up on there this time. And uh, uh, tell us that we're once more. Uh, this isn't even a hut because it would be too uh, insecure if it was a whole hut. Right. This is the conspiracy corner. Uh, and this time around, uh, beloved Patreon backer uh, Drew uh, Clowry has uh, written a, uh, a detailed question. Normally I paraphrase, but uh, Drew is so beloved, and uh, the question is uh, requires a bit of uh, uh, detail. So I'm just going to. Uh, read a longer question than I normally would. I would be interested to hear your thoughts about the Storm Area 51 meme. Uh, And let's note that uh, Drew posed this question before the uh, date when Storm Area 51 was supposed to happen, and I waited until afterwards because it would have been so funny if it had gone the other way. Um, uh, Let me continue Drew's question. Where conspiracy theory moves from comic harmless idiots to people are going to get hurt or killed, and what are our responsibilities as consumers of entertaining nonsense? Recently, I had to sit down a member of my gaming group and fun ruin for him, uh, despite that what he might have heard on the Joe Rogan show, the government was not covering up UFOs, and Bob Lazar is a scam artist who should not be trusted to run a register with less than $20 in it. I'm generally happy to let people believe whatever dumb thing they like, but when people are talking, even jokingly, about storming a different facility where they will absolutely be shot dead for trying to break in, I felt I had to say something. And he goes on to talk about suppressed transmissions and how that sort of was an inoculation against a a lot of uh, conspiracy nonsense. But definitely, even in the 
forget suppressed transmissions in the amount of time we've been doing this show, the nutty crank stuff that we talk about and make fun of uh, has uh, permeated politics around the world and including uh, permeating the sponge like brain of, of your president. So uh, how do we, <laughs> it is this still uh, the best way of uh, dipping your toe into this material or do we as creators need to be building uh, more of an electric fence around it. I mean, the the trouble with doing sort of defanged uh, uh, children's chewable conspiracy stuff is that you can get the 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 hard stuff just next door. So if you deliberately do something less cool than you're capable of, you don't prevent anyone. You just sort of turn people away from from your stuff. That's why. Uh, something like suppressed transmission, um, regardless of its quality, always aim to be one louder so that when people are, are seeing it, the response is, Oh, Templars have come up. Ergo, it's nonsense as because Ken is just going to go bananas as opposed to the Templars. Hey, eh? tell me more about the secretive group of European knights because you, what, what you don't want is to fall between the stools and provide something that is going to act as a genuine entry drug. And the thing is people being people. Anything can act as a genuine entry drug to anything. I swear to golly, I had uh, someone way back in the earliest days of Usenet get very, very interested in interwar European fascist thought because of a tossed off line in one of the GURPS alternate Earths books. And I know this because they would every so often pop up on the alternate Earths uh, uh, group or the, the uh, alternate history group and talk excitedly about their new discoveries and embarrassingly praise uh, my book as the, as the, as the blue, the red pill or whichever pill it is you're supposed to take to become insane. And and so, yeah, people wind up going wrong any number of different from any number of different on ramps and off ramps to from any number of highways. Uh, I think that it is important if you are doing a, a, a game about some sort of conspiracy or activity that you signpost as clearly as you can that it is nonsense, that it is uh, mental play uh, somewhere between watching trains crash and uh, building ships in a bottle, that it is not actually a thing that in, that that has any relevance to the real world. And I think most people, most consumers of it are, are pretty... Uh, are pretty good at it because obviously the audience for this, I mean, there was what 2 million people said they were going to go storm area 51 and it turned out maybe 4,000 people did. And a lot of those were probably just, well, I've never gone to uh, area 51. I'd like to go out. And as someone who went to area 51 or as close as you're allowed to go uh, on my honeymoon of all things, uh, I get that. Right. But what you didn't have was, uh, this crazy internet meme causing 2 million people to storm a military base and possibly someone gets themselves killed or injured. Um, even regardless of the Air Force's response, it's a desert and it's a desert full of rattlesnakes and things. So, you know, God knows you don't want a bunch of, of tubby goofs out running around dehydrating in, in, in amidst the rocks and, and scrub. Right? right. And in the original uh, meme, there was all kinds of evidence that it was a joke, right? It's that mm -hmm. you're going to avoid the bullets by Naruto running, uh -huh. uh, running like an anime character. So I, I think another part of the puzzle is that it's important to depict these spreaders and exploiters of conspiracy theory as the bad guys. So right. uh, this, of course, is the heart of the esoterrorists, is that they are attempting to uh, bring about a terrible inbreak of demonic forces into the world by increasing people's anxiety, 
uh, increasing their credulity and taking advantage of uh, some people's desire for the world to be weirder than it really is. And then in that world, of course, it becomes weirder, but that's bad. And so uh, you don't have, you know, the, uh, the player characters are not the ones uh, spreading conspiracy theories, but rather they're the ones uh, trying to uh, dampen them out. That's why you've got, you know, the veil out where they are trying to uh, take the uh, absurd, crazy, alarming thing and make it seem mundane again. So they're trying to make it look like swamp gas or an urban legend or uh, this uh, uh, video was obviously a, a deep fake. And here's the the render lines where you can see that. Now, uh, by doing that, of course, the uh, the Ordo Veritatis who fight the Esoterics are more responsible than a lot of social media platforms, right. which uh, now, uh, if you just follow the recommendation algorithms, you can go down a rabbit hole. And even if you, you know, if you're looking at something kind of on YouTube that is, uh, you know, a straight up something about uh, spying or espionage or, or real life conspiracies, which of course. Uh, they are real and abundant, and there's lots of them going on uh, even as yeah. we speak. Conspiracy theorists tend to engage in conspiracies. Uh, but if you walk away for a couple of hours and just let it run, you might come back and have some uh, really uh, uh, toxic stuff uh, uh, sludging out at you because of the way that the uh, the algorithms uh, uh, work. So I, I think that a, a, an argument that just uh, not doing that or treating it as... Uh, in a more serious po-faced way is either not going to achieve anything or it's going to leave the field open for more uh, malign actors and that it's important to uh, have uh, people in the, the pop culture vein, uh, which is all where all of these things get processed, uh, you know, let all this stuff remain in pop culture against the efforts of the people who want to make the crazy things that are happening in movies and comics and role-playing games happen in the real world where they're really freaking dangerous. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, we've been talking a little bit or, or mostly, I guess, about our responsibilities as producers of nonsense. Uh, Drew's question was about responsibilities as consumers of nonsense. And as uh, a laissez-faire guy, you're responsible as a consumer is to uh, pay for it with a credit card that works. But I do think that it does help if you, the consumer of nonsense work to compartmentalize and, in the same way that you might say, I'm going to go watch a Marvel movie, even though I know that the script will be a, a shambles, but I'm not going to care about the script because what I want to see is Captain Marvel shoot a plane or whatever. And so you, you, you go and you watch the movie and you enjoyed it because Brie Larson is terrific and, and she, in fact, shoots a plane and everything you wanted happened. And you can compartmentalize and turn off outside concerns. I think the same thing has to happen when you are. Uh, consuming nonsense is that you have to be able to say this is a this is a a consumable this is a uh, a a potato chip this is not reality and you can do that any number of ways by actually educating yourself about genuine political history which is very long and boring uh it can just be instinctively distrusting everything you read once it hits um uh, a certain uh meme weight uh you can say well this has um uh uh, Trump and Templars and uh, international bankers. Therefore, it's nonsense, no matter what it says and how many footnotes it might present. And just, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the, the Umberto Eco principle that you can tell a lunatic by the fact he always brings up the Templars. Uh, since that book came out, 
the the number of things he always brings up has gone up a little bit, but by and large, you can find some some danger words, and once they're once they show up in your medium, that's the the, the glowing barium, and you know maybe don't drink this uh, unironically. I guess is what right. I'm saying. And and to train yourself uh, in the question, as in real life, where you know the protocols of the elders of Zion were created as disinformation by uh, by the Russian secret police, by the Russian secret police, uh, that uh, to ask yourself and to portray this as uh, this is a weapon. Uh, how is this being used and who, who is using it and who are they taking advantage of? Uh, one of the difficulties when someone is a hardcore believer in a bunch of this stuff uh, is that uh, you talk about a, a, a gateway drug and that is not as metaphorical as it might seem because having a easily and frequently challenged extreme belief uh, is a way of uh, getting dopamine is that when you mm-hmm. have an opportunity to someone confronts you and, and says, no, these guys are scam artists or whatever. If you are then able to rationalize your way to doubling down on whatever it is that you've chosen to believe in order to make yourself the knowing person at this center of an uh, alternate reality, um, you are uh, responding to a faith demand and satisfying that faith demand with, whatever rationalization works for the moment. Right. And then you get a nice little hit of positive brain chemistry. And, and this is why everyone on Twitter, even the ones who agree with you seem like crazy people because they are engaged in, as you say, sort of a long form drug trip. Uh, and they are saying crazy things on Twitter in order to get that hit. And usually they're doing it in response to something crazy. Someone else said on the other side. And so Basically, what you're doing is you're watching a bunch of meth heads argue about where they should dig the gold mine when you go on Twitter. And once you recognize, like you say, that dopamine response, the natural tendency of all rhetoric to go uh, uh, away from first principles and the weird gravity of all conspiracy theories that become anti-Semitism, you, you just keep those three things in mind, and those will act, I guess, as your sort of um, uh, good general principles to uh, to remain wary of, of whatever nonsense while still being able to play fun games about vampires or esoterists or Carcosa or whatever. Right. And also, don't beat yourself up when you're unable to detach someone from a conspiracy theory that they have a, a strong connection to because uh, the, the way that belief systems work is that you may briefly be able to challenge somebody and get them to accept something. But guess what? Next week when they come back, uh, they'll have dipped in again probably and uh, found uh, a, a way of thinking around the, the uh, objection that you have raised and then, and then they're back in it. And, often what, and, and I think it's partly a personality type. Good luck eradicating certain personality types. But if <laughs> people who are suggestible to this stuff... Uh, the one I think one of the reasons that this is all the more prevalent now is, as I said, there are now algorithms that weren't even designed to do this uh, to expose the maximum number of people to this to these compelling means that draw them in. And in many cases, those algorithms get used by bad actors yes. uh, to to draw people in. I mean, in in this, in the, the YouTube is basically an equivalent of the of the white van driven around by the evil clown that says "kids free candy" on the side. Yes, the the, the Akrana had to like print physical copies of the protocols <laughs> right? of the Elders of Zion, uh-huh. carefully get them out in the environment, and now it's just all it's all an upload away. And yep. there are other. Uh, pan-global phenomenon that are uh, feeding into this, but I think part of it is that the it's the activation of a particular personality yeah. uh, type and uh, uh, giving them a route 
to uh, participate in politics when they previously uh, would be marginalized. And uh, maybe it was better that way. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, I guess this is sort of outside our, our, our topic, but the notion that we have got a, a global uh, idiocy addiction crisis uh, or what do you say? An, an, an idiocracy, if, if you will. An, an, well, it's not even an idiocracy. I mean, we've always been run by idiots, Robin. I hate to break it to you. But um, but this... Uh, as you say, this, this addictive, uh, madness, this do- constant dopamine hit from rage and justification is a, it's a thing that society has not evolved to deal with. And, uh, you only have to look at how well society has de- dealt with all the other addictive drugs that have been discovered to imagine that, uh, things are going to get worse before they get better. So just try not to be part of the problem. Well, uh, that's a climactic note, if not a cheerful one <laughs> on, on which to end this episode. So, uh, next week we'll be back, uh, with the happy fun side of all this nuttiness. Uh, and, uh, and so we'll, we'll see you then. And we'll uh, come up with, I don't know, something about beer and time travel. That sounds good. Beer and beer, time travel next time week. travel. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast a 13 out of 10 by joining forces with adored Patreon backers like Patrick Joint. Adam Grotjan. Darren Dumay. Alexander Zimmerman and Anderson Todd. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new ultra on-brand design gaming hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>